Hey, y'all. Hey, thank you for listening to Knowing Faith. We had such a good conversation around Genesis chapter three that it, it kind of went a little long. I'm going to blame that on JT's long-windedness. No, but, but seriously, we really enjoy talking about it. It is so rich. We could have talked about it for hours. So we ended up making this into two episodes. So there's a part one and a part two. And so you can listen to part one. And then after you listen to part one, you can jump into part two. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, so what I'm pointing to is that we're not given one verse that tells us what happened. We're given a story that tells yes. us what happens. And in right, that exactly. story, we see both the man and the woman sin. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and I think what uh, the thing that appeals to me about what Beale says um, that you were talking about earlier, and I don't know, I need to think about it more. I'm not, I'm not, I've not landed on this because literally when you said it was the first time I've heard it, but I've heard other people say things like, um, well, like the closer you get to the story, I've had students say to me, well, it feels like Eve was already entertaining the idea of taking mm-hmm. the fruit in the way that she's sort of like hyper aware of the tree, you know, overstates what God said about the tree. And so, um, and I think if we were to read, and I think people often do read what happens in Genesis 3, and it feels like someone saw fruit, grabbed it and ate it. But, mm-hmm. but our experience of sin is that it's progressive. And yeah. so it would not surprise me if Beale is right and there is actually something progressive happening here. So we don't know at what point Adam's progression begins or what point Eve's progression begins with the sin, but we know that they are equally culpable in the act. And so I think what I'm also concerned about is that when you assign, as people have throughout history, if you assign um, more blame to the man than you do to the woman or vice versa. That's when you start to get a lot of really strange and and harmful teachings about men and women. Because if we are co-heirs, then we also must be um, co-sinners. you know, yeah. it can't be that um, because otherwise, if let's say the man is is the first one to sin, then does he get more grace than 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 women? Do, you know, like does Adam receive a greater measure of grace than the woman does? Does a woman receive a derivative form of grace because he's the first to sin and he's the head? And so, I just think you have to be really, really careful. Or is the woman, you know, in needing of more grace? And I'm and honestly, I think that can be the more common teaching out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in, the, in the infantilization of women or the character of women as temptresses or usurpers comes from all of this. You know, it's yeah. like, well, you know what she did before he did, you know? And yeah. so anyway. Well, well, that's good, Jen. That's really that good. That is good. So moving forward, so Adam and Eve, not one or the other, reject God's rule and reign. Um, They do so by listening to the voice of the serpent, succumbing to the temptation to not just be in the image of God, but to become God. So let's talk about what are some of the immediate impact or immediate consequences or aftermath of that. What happens, like, and I don't necessarily want us to get to the consequences and curses yet. We're going to get there in just a moment. But what's kind of the immediate ripple that happens. We, it says that they, their eyes were open. Mm-hmm. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loincloths. Then they hear the, the sound of the Lord God walking and they go hide among the trees. So what, what do we see as the immediate aftermath? It's bad. It, it's bad? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the first things you see, Augustine would point to these verses and then the ones following that we'll get to in a minute, their nature changes. I mean, the fact that they're now able to be aware of things they weren't aware of means that they've had a fundamental change in what it means to be a human. That's demonstrated in the text with language like uh, they were naked, they were ashamed, they hid themselves. And so we now are aware of our frailty, of our depravity, of our brokenness and sinfulness in a way that we weren't 
beforehand, which means we're, we, the first thing that we're going to do is hide from the presence of God, the very thing we would have run to a chapter previously. JT, I think that's right. Um, I think that one of the the biggest things uh, that happens immediately is what you said is that they were meant to live in God's presence. But you know, I think the interesting thing that happens right after they uh, the the immediate impact after sin is that they're running from God's presence, and it's it's fascinating because it actually clues us into something that's going to be true of how sin plays itself out across the world and all of our lives, which is using God's world to hide from God's presence. I mean, mm-hmm. look what they do. Huh. They immediately sew fig leaves together and they make themselves loincloths. They take God's like God's world and they try to cover themselves up. And then they hear the sound of the Lord God. Where do they go? They go hide behind the trees. I mean, we think like how... How silly is this? Are you really going to be able to hide from God mm-hmm. by fig leaves in the tree? But that is indicative of sin's kind of impact, which is this idea that, okay, we can take God's world, we can use it in a way that rejects his rule and reign, and we can use it to try to cover ourselves up and hide from his presence. And so I think there is this immediate impact of saying, I'm going to use God's world to hide from God's presence. Well, and also I think it's to use the gifts that God has given me to rule and subdue to self-preserve. I have, I seriously have not even seen this connection until now. It's never occurred to me to be curious that it says they sewed together fig leaves. So what do they do? They, they, they use implements to bring order from chaos in one sense, right? Like they're creating something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but now, and which is what they were charged to do, like go and do the good work. And now they're doing the work as an act of self-preservation. And I, I've heard a teaching before about how, um, you know, it says our righteousness is filthiness and rags and ties it to this idea that they're clothing themselves in their own um, creation to try to shield themselves from the wrath of God. And that it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for, for, for works-based righteousness. Yeah. It's also true. We learn we learn something about humanity, certainly, but we also learn something about God that we're made for his presence. Mm-hmm. Once we're aware of our shame, we run from his presence, but that doesn't stop him from coming to us. Absolutely. So, so it says, uh, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? And of course, the biblical and in Hebrew worldview of who God is, is he is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. He, it's not that he doesn't know where they are. It's not that he isn't aware of, their pre, of, of where they've gone. But yet as, as kind of a loving, uh, gentle question, he, he, he understands what's happened. He understands what they've done. He comes to them rather than waiting for Adam and Eve to finally get up the courage to come back into God's presence. He comes to us in the middle of our sin, brokenness, nakedness, and shame. And is, as we're going to see later in the text, provides for us the very thing that we can't provide for ourselves mm-hmm. is redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, they try to hide from God's presence in God's world. They use the creative skills that he's given them uh, to devise covering for their sin. But God brings, his, God brings his gracious presence to them, even though they have rejected his rule and reign. And he begins to speak to them. And he says, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound. This is the man speaking. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, well, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then we begin, we get the addressing of consequences and curses. But is there any blame shifting that's happening here? Because it certainly, no. uh, <laughs> it certainly feels that way. Uh, it certainly feels like uh, Adam immediately is like, hey, you gave me this woman. She's the downfall. And then the woman's is like, no, it's the serpent. I mean, there's a lot of blame getting moved around here. Yeah, Adam hits two categories. He blames the woman and God. Right. And yeah, and then the woman blames the serpent. So, what, you know, again, I think uh, to, to not make this about a communication theory, because, again, I've, I've heard this sermon a dozen times about how sin's impact on our marriages is blame shifting and all this stuff. But I do think one of the things that we're immediately seeing is that sin is not just creating division between uh, God and humanity, but between humanity and one another and humanity and the natural order, right? I, that, yeah. That's like right out of the gate. It's like, okay, this division and separation, it's almost like, okay, you get Adam and Eve. It's almost like you imagine them sewing fig leaves together, like, right? They're sitting on the ground, sewing fig leaves together. They run off into the trees together to hide. It's almost like they're together in their brokenness. God enters the situation and we start to see the division is not just between God and humanity, but between them and one another. Right, because it's the upside, it's the it's the inverse of the great commandment. You shall rival the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall rival your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so now, instead of being co-laborers and um, uh, and um, colleagues, they're going to be competitors. They're yeah. going to want to tear one another down, which is exactly what God is going to articulate as he moves into the consequences slash curses section of the text. Yeah. So we get these uh, consequences or curses and let's just go ahead and talk about it. Are these consequences or are they curses? Because it seems like, uh, well, it seems like they're cursed and they're the language of curse is actually. <laughs> is this one of those? Is this one of those when it's like Jen's going to say, well, is it a curse or a consequence? And it's actually yeah. something else. She's not even. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dang it, it's that curse sequence that didn't even see it coming. Yeah. Um, but no, because you have you, you initially have the address to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall go dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. And then you have the Genesis 3.15 promise, which we need to pause here and say, because this is what the church fathers called the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, proto-first-euangelion gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a, right, this is a promise, a messianic promise that there is one that's going to come that's going to be seed of the woman who's going to crush yep. the head of the serpent. Anything to add to that? I, I We've talked about this on the show before. but Yeah. No, I feel like we've covered it before. Um, but from moving on from there, you have to the woman, he said, I'm going to multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Is this a consequence or a curse? And is this where, uh, what is happening in Genesis? Let me just ask it like that, Jen, uh, so that I don't poison the well here and get <laughs> popped in the mouth for it here. In a second. But in Genesis three sixteen, I mean, what is happening? Well, again, I think that we're, you know, you can't, yeah, it's the whole picture. So like, basically you've already seen it start to play out by the time God says it, it's already happening as we just saw that 
Um, he's blaming her. She, and it, you know, and some people have actually made a note that she doesn't do what you would expect because like he says, the woman made me do it basically. And what she doesn't respond with is the man made me do it. Like that's the way that you and I have, you know, like honestly, if if Jeff and I were, you know, having a spat over something, he'd say, well, you did this. And I wouldn't say, well, the dog did blah, blah, blah. I would say, no, you did this. Um, And she doesn't respond that way. And what, what God is going to point out in these, um, in these statements of, I'm going to call them consequence um, is, Hey, here's your biological reality. And here's how it's going to change. Um, and the biological reality of the man and the woman, even before he makes this statement, is that the man is physically dominant. And so there have been commentators who have have noted that when Eve has an opportunity to accuse Adam, she doesn't. And they say, is it because he is physically dominant? Like, is this the, is this a sign of she, the first time that she fears him? Uh, as, as a potential uh, risk instead of as an ally, uh, which is not to say that he doesn't have things to fear in his relationship with her. But then you get into these statements and they are talking about, hey, you know what your body is designed to do? It's designed to um, to to give birth to a child. You know what his body is designed to do? It's designed to um, do physically difficult labor. And, and again, I think everybody who's listened to this podcast for any amount of time knows that what we're not saying when we talk about those things is, Men, men go and in, go into the office and women stay at home and have babies. So I'm not even going to spend time on that. Yeah. But again, biological realities are at play. And, and I think that this, this statement of, you know, your desire is going to be for him and he is going to rule over you is acknowledging that she's going to um, use whatever forms of power she has to subvert him. And he is going to use whatever forms of power he has to subvert her instead of using whatever forms of power they have to build one another up and empower one another for the mission. Yeah. That's that good. was a lot. No, I, no, I think that what you're saying though is important, which is that what is at play here is not, uh, these are not necessarily socio-cultural distinctions about what men and women can or should or could or shouldn't do. What's at play here is that there are things that were meant to be a blessing to the other that now there's going to be the temptation, not always the reality because you can you can walk in obedience, which we'll talk right. about later, but there's going to be the temptation to use what you would have used to bless the other to break the other. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, one of the simple ways that I think you see even people who don't have an understanding of, you know, biblical concerns talk about this. And this is a vastly oversimplified statement, but you, you, you maybe have heard people say um, men use power to get sex, women use sex to get power. So that would be a very, very, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, that's right. And that's wonderful. But that would be a, an articulation of this idea that we're going to take the thing that we think gives us status and we're going to use it against the other sex instead of the other sex. Yeah. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. So, so that... We, we've addressed the woman, but he speaks to Adam and he says, yeah. because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So this one is a little bit more layered, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is the consequence or curse on the ground that, listen, work is not going to be as fruitful with, like, it it is going to be hard labor for you to produce provision. Yeah, so it's it's not just that sin. So, So the categories we've kind of walked through has been our sin changes our relationship with the cosmos, like all of reality. Our sin changes our relationship with the creator. Our sin changes our relationship with created image bearers. And our sin creates a new relationship with creation that now the the very thing that we were meant to cultivate and that we were meant to to bring beauty from as jen often says order out of chaos that this is what we were supposed to do with the ground is now going to be as we told to adam by the sweat of his brow by the work i mean by blood by sweat by tears he's now going to have to do the thing that god created him to do and he's not going to be able to do it the way he was intended to do it Absolutely. And this disruption is not only just going to impact him, it's going to impact all of humanity, right? right. I mean, so the consequence here is addressed to Adam, uh, but it is not exclusive to him. Mm-hmm. You, as, as, a, as a one who, as uh, Jen said, is, was physiologically different, where there are some biological realities, some of the consequences that for as strong as Adam was bodily, it's going to be even harder for him to work the ground. Like he's not going to be able to do it on his own, right? Like what was supposed to be a way of exercising God's rule and reign that probably was going to be marked by shalom and peace. This is now going to be backbreaking labor. It's going to be difficult. Well, and it's not that it's not just good for Adam. It's also not good for the creation for which Adam was right. created to, to till. I mean, so mm-hmm. so now the, the very created order that God was going to bring glory to himself through Adam's work is now not going to respond the way that it was originally created to respond. You have similar language in the New Testament that, that creation is now groaning because the very purpose for which it was created for can not, no longer be fulfilled through the cultural mandate that Adam was suppo- Adam and Eve were supposed to fulfill. Absolutely. And you have mortality for, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Right. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have this you have this assurance. Listen, you were taken out of the ground uh, and you will return to the ground. You are dust and you will return to dust. That this sign of listen, your body is more fragile now because of sin. Uh, you're not going to be as strong as you need to be. You are not going to be as efficient as you need to be. And that is going to be signified fundamentally in the reality that you are going to die. This right. might be the part that we hide from the most, I think, that the, the part that is so hard for kind of a, a late modern 21st century humanity to face is we do want to grasp after our own immortality, mm-hmm. whether that's through the right fitness routine or the right you know, diet or the right, you know, makeup or clothes or whatever is we want this kind of perpetual youthfulness, which we're not separated from the rest of humanity in that. But I think particularly our age, we want to hide death. You even look at church architecture from 200 years ago. And and when you walked into the church, you walked by the graveyard. And when you Mm -hmm. walked out of the church, you walked past the graveyard. But now we're all in, including myself, our church is in a strip mall and right next to a fantastic Sam's and a liquor store. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you're not confronted with death every time you go in to worship your creator or confronted with death. Every time you leave, you're confronted with late modernity. And I think this is one of those, the, the part of the text that we might need to spend the most time on is, is our own finitude, frailty and mm-hmm. impending death uh, pending the Lord's imminent return, of course. But this is something that I think for me, when Macy got sick a few years ago, this is more just us talking as friends and teaching the Bible. I was confronted with death in a way that I wasn't prepared for, even through all my you know study or theology. Like the fact that death is, it, it felt like it was creeping in areas that I wasn't expecting it to. It's like, wait a second, that's supposed to be when I'm 85. I've got 55 more years that I want to live with, my wife. <laughs> you know, and you're telling like, I'm fine if I, if we died, not fine, but you understand like, yeah, I'm promised this full life. Right. I thought that I was going to have, you know, health and happiness and a vibrant marriage and young kids that I get to see. And then all of a sudden you're confronted with the ultimate enemy that God has, has, has placed here as, as a result of our sinfulness that really, uh, I, I think I would just encourage people like there's, there's a, there's a recent book. I can't think of the name of it, um, about death. The guy at, from Vanderbilt, Kyle, he's a pastor in Nashville. Uh, I'll think of it here in a minute. I'll actually Google it in a second, but it's the idea of the gift of embracing, uh, your mortality uh, is actually going to be a gift to you because it helps you brace the immortal God. That's good. I, as a as a woman who knows what it's like for women to try to cover their age, the older that they get, you know, like I don't know if listeners have noticed, but I will often mention my na- my age on on the podcast, and I'm I'm doing that on purpose because um, women are told that we're supposed to cover our age and that the highest right. compliment you can receive is how you, how young you look, and I'm. I'm getting gray hair and I'm letting it grow in. And I'm not saying that because I'm saying, Hey, every woman out there, you should not cover your gray. You can do whatever you want. I found for, for me, it was an important exercise in numbering my days rightly. And then also JT's laughing because we have reflected on how he's like a portrait of the president, you know, before and after the presidency, he's got like in the time I've known him, he went from being little teeny baby JT to grandpa JT. Uh, But, but you know, it's, it's, um, for me, it, it helps me when I see that gray hair to remember to number my days rightly. And um, I had a conversation actually one day with with Matt Chandler in the in the halls of the office. And I said, oh, my gosh, you're getting some gray hair. And he's like, yep, I couldn't be happier. Mm. Well, of course he couldn't be happier. You know, he thought he wouldn't live this long, you know. And so I just think we don't think about the significance of um, 
you know, like all those middle age jokes, here's a person, Matt's a person who's thrilled to, to experience middle age. Um, and so, um, anyway, for what it's worth and then this connection to the dust, I think is something that we're constantly trying to break. And I think you see it, uh, in the scriptures, an interesting way I came across this this week and something I was preparing for is when Moses is at the burning bush and God says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground and the removal of shoes. And in fact, feet in the scriptures are what are a symbol of our mortality, like that we are human. And it's because our feet are what connect us to the dust. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, it's kind of cool. It's hard to, by the way, the book is called Remember Death, The Surprising Path to Living Hope by Matthew McCullough. Nice. And it's really about this idea that if if you, if death for you stays distant and remote, so will the promise of resurrection. Uh, the ultimate promise of the gospel. So if you're unwilling to embrace the, the the consequence of our sin, it'll be more challenging for you to embrace the promise of salvation. Oh man, it's, it, it is, uh, yeah, it's sobering. And particularly this year, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like this is the year where it feels like death has been more unavoidable. Yeah, collectively mm-hmm. we've all had to think about it. We, we have, we've been forced to think about it and we've been forced to examine our own frailty in the face of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that in our home, we've had to really weigh um, just because of some realities that are unique of our uh, unique to our home. We've had to really weigh, uh, man, what would it mean for us to, to be exposed mm-hmm. to this pandemic and mm-hmm. COVID and, I think that those realities are often so displaced for us um, as kind of modern citizens of technology, uh, uh, technologically progressive environments, but where we just kind of feel like, oh, we can delay death or we can prevent death into perpetuity. But the reality is, is that scripture is saying we can't. It is an enemy. It is, as Corinthians says, the last enemy to be defeated. And it will be defeated, but its power and presence remains still to this day. Mm -hmm. So, um, but that's not where Genesis 3 ends. Genesis 3 doesn't end with death. And actually, it takes what can feel like a very hard right turn. So, for you were dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Whoa. Hard right turn. I mean, it's like you've just heard, you just heard, you're all going to die. Adam Adam looks over at his wife and says, baby, I'm calling you Eve. You are going to be the mother of all living. You're like, is this like a, is this dark humor at this point? Satire? Is it parody? And it says that uh, the, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. So is, uh, you know, I, I, I've often thought that Genesis 3.20, that this pronouncement of Eve is the mother of all living, is in reference to Adam's faith and hope in the promise of Genesis 3.15. Is that mm-hmm. crazy? Am I crazy yeah. for that? That's what I think. I mean, of all of the statements, we don't we don't believe that this is the only statement he makes in the wake of what God said, but this is the only one that is recorded. Um, and I think it's significant because it shows that what he heard in all of that was you know, there's a way, there's a way forward. And, and the woman is going to be the means by which it comes. Yeah. Um, and we get a foretaste of that. And I think this is, this reinforces what we've just said, that Adam's proclamation here of Eve as the mother of all living is a testament of faith and hope in Genesis 3.15, that God is going to send through the seed of the woman, one who would crush the head of the serpent. 
um, and make right what sin made wrong. Because in verse 21, what do we get? Well, we get atonement, don't we? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't this the first blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and the covering of sin, uh, the, the, the providing of righteousness, the providing mm -hmm. of a covering? I mean, this certainly connects with uh, themes that are going to echo throughout the rest of Scripture. Right. Yeah, I think you're seeing the, the uh, proto-sacrificial system. Yeah, mm -hmm. set in place. And so notice what's happening. You've got the man and the woman looking toward a future hope and living in a present reality that involves the shedding of blood to cover their sins um, from, from an animal that has done nothing wrong. So, yeah. And then we move from here, which is a brief moment of light, back into some of the impact of sin, which is exile. JT, talk to me a little bit about exile. We have the exile from the garden here, but exile is a mega theme throughout scripture. Like what the, this exile from the garden is going to reverberate in a big way over the whole of the Bible, but particularly the Old Testament, right? Yeah, yeah it does. So remember what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, those themes of dwelling, dominion, and dynasty or presence, people, place, and purpose. Here we're losing one of those key themes of the the, the dwelling presence of God, of enjoying his intimate abiding presence as a, as not just a daily thing, but a minute by minute thing, a moment by moment thing. And God expels his dynasty of image bearers from his very presence. And so if you're looking just, just kind of a quick overview of the Bible, this exile, exilic theme is something that happens over and over. You could argue that the Exodus uh, becomes an exilic theme before they're brought back into the promised land. And then you could argue that, not argue, but the Bible makes very clear that the Assyrian exile exile in 722, the Babylonian exile, 605, 597, and 586 BC are also exiles. They're sent into Babylon and then brought back through the ministries of, of, uh, of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then ultimately, Jesus takes on our exile as he is the sacrificial lamb who goes outside the city gates, bearing our sin and our shame so that he could become the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. And so exile is this theme. And here we have kind of this proto-exile, this first one, which shows us what it's like to be a human. What it's like to be a human is to live outside the very presence of the creator with which we were to enjoy. Uh, what, the way we defined exile in the training program was something like this. We said exile is the experience of pain and suffering that results from the knowledge that there is a home where one belongs, yet for the present one is unable to return there. This existential sense of deep loss may be compounded by a sense of guilt or remorse stemming from the knowledge that the cause of exile is sin. And so I think that as we've taught that over the years, that's a definition that really resonates with people because whether you would articulate that or not, we all have this longing for home, a mm -hmm. knowledge that we were created uh, for something different, to be in the presence of God, to be in right relationship with each other, to live in shalom and peacefulness, peacefulness with God's created order. But that's none of our experience. Right. And so part of the good news of the gospel is that God is ending our exile. He begins to end it in Jesus. Jesus comes to us to be Emmanuel, God with us. He also is now the one who ascends to the right hand of the Father after his death, burial, and resurrection. And what's the very first thing he does? He gives us a down payment, a deposit to end our exile in the presence of the Holy Spirit so that all of us who are disciples of Jesus have this, this uh, uh, down payment that our exile will one day be completely over. So we used to get questions all the time in the training program, uh, like, are we still in exile? 
uh, now that we have the Holy Spirit, because there can be this over-torqued, uh, well, we have, the, we have this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. What else would you want? What else would you need? But Peter seems to think we do need something, which is why he calls us elect exiles. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I actually think it's the very presence of the Holy Spirit that, yes, gives us the intimacy and abiding relationship with the triune God in the very near, like the very present, like right now you can experience the, the very real presence of the triune God through the Holy Spirit. But I also think the presence of the Holy Spirit makes us more aware of our exile mm-hmm. that will one day end. So you get to the very end of the Bible and the whole hope is come Lord Jesus mm-hmm. and our exile. Mm-hmm. Let the, let the, let the Holy, let the bride and the church say, come. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, or as David says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Well, we end here today um, in exile, uh, having Adam and Eve been kicked out of the garden and headed out into a broken world. We're going to pick up next episode with asking the question, who's in charge here? As we explore the doctrine of providence as it pertains to Genesis 1 through 11. Listen, you can join the conversation by finding us on social media, anywhere, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Knowing Faith, or you can go to patreon.com slash knowingfaith if you'd like to sign up for our After the Fact monthly newsletter and all sorts of other cool incentives you can find over at Patreon. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Peace.